This week on the Backtable Podcast. I kept hearing over and over, well, our docs just leave it and they'll reassess it later. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't know, when's later, right? Like, you either get it done now or don't do it, frankly. So just be aware that they're expensive. If you're going to do them for the first time, try a couple of simple dissections, get a feel for it. Don't be putting, you know, 15, 20 of these things in because that's not going to be, that can help anybody. But use them judiciously and you'll be all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy, a resource aimed at improving patient outcomes with awareness, education, and optimized solutions through diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. Their goal is to support healthcare professionals through the clinical pathway, which takes their interest in Philips' best-in-class technology and translates it to applicable skills for appropriate clinical applications. They continue to deliver strategic, valuable educational programs that meet the evolving needs of their customers. Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy will give you access to upcoming live courses led by leaders in the field, self-paced distance learnings, on-demand case reviews, personalized peer-to-peer training, and comprehensive educational opportunities. From basic to advanced educational opportunities, they are dedicated to helping you achieve long-term success as well as competence and confidence with the Philips Peripheral Device Portfolio. They look forward to working with you on your developmental journey. If you have any questions, please contact them at philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Again, that's philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Now, back to the episode. We have a great episode today, multi-specialty. We've got an interventional radiologist, myself, an interventional cardiologist, John Phillips, and Krishna Manaba, vasa surgeon, all with Columbus roots. John and Krishna are in, currently in Columbus. As the audience knows, I'm from Columbus and talk about the Buckeyes frequently. So I'm excited to have you guys on. And today we're going to talk about which dissections matter. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about troubleshooting for dissections for peripheral tilt disease. But first, everybody's familiar with Krishna. He's been on the show before. But John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. And I'm, I'm super excited. I always enjoy talking about things peripheral and endovascular means of treating things. So it should be fun. Great. And Krishna, welcome back. Thanks, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Happy to be on this multidisciplinary uh, boxing match. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, first, um, let's talk, John, tell us about your practice in Columbus, what it looks like. Sure. So I'm an interventional cardiologist. I work for Ohio Health, which is one of the large healthcare systems in central Ohio. I've been there going on 11 years. I am the uh, our system director for our vascular institute, which is kind of nice. So we kind of get all subspecialists who treat vascular diseases kind of under one umbrella. And, uh, you know, we do quality metrics and educational seminars and things of that nature. And uh, I do a lot of PAD, a lot of critical limb work. So the topic of dissections is, is germane because we see, I see them all the time. And a lot of times we hem and haw about what to do about them. So I'm curious to have this conversation. As part of your practice, are you still doing cardiac work as well, though? STEMIs and whatnot? Yeah, I take STEMI call for the group. My coronary work is probably maybe 20% of my entire cachet, so to speak. 
I wish I did more, frankly, but uh, there's a lot of CLI out there and my other partners are, are great, but they, I, I guess I'm the CLI guy. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Well, um, let's jump into the meat of it today. We, we wanted to talk a little bit about which dissections matter with uh, respect to peripheral arterial disease in the leg and, you know, whether it be above the knee, below the knee or both. John, can you just tell us a little bit about like, when are you most commonly seeing dissections you know, when, when you're treating PAD? Well, I mean, honestly, anytime you inflate a balloon in an artery, you're creating some type of a dissection. Now, whether or not it's quote unquote flow limiting remains to be seen. Oftentimes, at least for me, I try to think about the dissection in a, a couple of different ways. The biggest one is, you know, is there, is flow being limited? Meaning is, do I need to do something about this? It was always interesting when I would go out to the conference out in Leipzig link, and you'd watch how the interventionalists and proceduralists over in Europe would just kind of shred these arteries and, and balloon, they'd balloon it, but you'd, they'd leave a pretty nasty looking dissections. And as an interventional cardiologist, we don't leave dissections in the coronaries. And so my old, pra you know, I, we were doing a fair amount of stenting of these vessels and going out to link and seeing how other people are doing things and using a lot of just drug coated balloons alone. We started leaving more and more dissections, or at least thinking about them, and maybe not necessarily having to put a scaffold in. And so for me, I try to assess the flow pattern above and below the dissection. If it's in an FEMPOP region, I'll often put a catheter across it and try to measure a pressure gradient. And if it's in the tibials, I'll, I'll often put an IVUS catheter down and kind of see what that dissection looks like. I mean, I, I know there are grades of dissection. I don't necessarily follow those, but in general, when I have a flap that's probably arcing greater than 180, I'm considering that this might be flow limiting and, and maybe we need to do something. Got it. And, and so when you see a dissection and it's flow, let's say it is flow limiting, what's your algorithm? Where, where do you start after that? Well, so I, I want to kind of get a makeup of what the plaque looks like. I mean, if, so if it's heavily calcified and I've dissected it, I'm probably, and I, and I feel like it's flow limiting and I'm, I'm going to need to put a scaffold in. It's probably going to be a stent of some sort and it's probably going to be a, a woven nitinol stent like a Supira. If it's not and it is Fempop region or, you know, iliacs or something, then, then I will be stenting it to some degree. There's also intact vascular was purchased by Philips and they have the, the little vascular tacks. In full disclosure, I do speak for Philips, and so I'm pretty well-versed in the tax, and I have been using more of those above and, and below the knee. I think that's a nice a nice bailout. If there is a dissection below the knee in the tibial vessels, uh, depending on where it's located, I'll put a coronary stent in uh, as well, but I try to limit the lengths of those, and I try to keep it in the upper third kind of of those tibial branches. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you know I do have some questions from the audience about TAC. Uh, you know these are these are IRs that the, again the audience is familiar with. They're curious to know about the TAC system. Talk us through like that decision TAC versus stent. Is it all about the the length of, of the dissection? It is. I think the the couple of things that you have to understand with the TAC system, it's not a stent. There's different sizes. There's they have kind of an adaptive sizing platform, so to speak. So the larger ones are four millimeter to eight millimeters, and they're eight millimeters in length. Those are great for fem pop regions. I've been using TAC for a long time, so I've made mistakes with it, and I know where to put it and where not to put it. And we use it off label for some stuff as well. And so depending on the length of the dissection, 
and where it is I consider, assuming it's flow limiting. So example, if we're talking fempop region, I've been using a fair amount of tacks across the, the knee joint if there's a dissection. And basically, you kind of want to tack up the proximal and distal edges of the dissection. And then in between, I usually put a couple of tacks. You get six in the device for the uh, four to eights and then the three fives to six or something like that. But we really don't use that one. And then the smaller ones, the tibial ones are one five to four or five millimeters and you get four in those. And so I think you have to be smart with using them because they are a lot more expensive than stents. And I try to avoid using them in heavily calcified areas unless if I've really modified the plaque and, and prepped that vessel aggressively. But in general, there's such little radial force in those. They're really meant to just, quote, I mean, literally tack up the dissection. But a lot of people ask me, do you use it in, in plaque? Because I think in their IFU, it's like if there's 30% residual stenosis or plaque, you're not really supposed to use them. But I, I use them in plaque all the time. I just, I avoid it in, in heavily calcified areas. You know, I want to rewind a little and, uh, you know, it's been bugging me, but I've been meaning to ask you, you have an extra L in your name. Is it really just Phillips with one L and you uh, <laughs> really are somewhat involved with Phillips and we need to know about this as a disclosure? It's funny. No, it is funny. I am involved with the Phillips with one L, but I've got two L's in my name. And on a, if I had one L and had some affiliation, <laughs> like own part of it, I'd we'd have this conversation on a beach, I think. <laughs> you know, traditionally we've used bare metal stents, sometimes covered stents, sometimes coronary stents below the groin. What makes tax so different just at a high level for those of us who haven't used it or used it very little? What, what makes it so different than just a typical stent in the leg? Well, a couple of things. It is very short. So you're getting, let's say we're, you're going to use the bigger ones, the, the four millimeter to eight millimeter. Those are eight millimeter in length. And basically the way I describe it, there's two little crowns kind of soldered together, basically. So it's very short, very, very little radial strength, but enough to, I think, seal a dissection where there is some residual plaque, but not enough to, say, treat somebody that has coral reef calcification in a fempop region. Because that's you can get into trouble with them because after you deploy them, you have to post-dilate them with a, with a fresh balloon. You don't want anything winged because they can catch and tumble on you. The ones in the, the tibials, the smaller ones, the one five to to four fives, those work well also. But again, the tibials, I think are, are, you know, there's a fair amount of calcification in those, whether we see it or not. And that medial calcification is always a problem. So you have to be careful when you use them down there. But I think the sweet spot for them, in my opinion, is kind of some of these no stent zones, as well as, as the tibials below that upper one third, because I've put in a fair share of coronary stents in the tibials and they come back crushed and uh, you know, I've got one guy that he needed an amp and they put a tourniquet on his leg and he lost the toe and then we lost the stents as well because it was crushed. I mean, like I use tax a, a fair amount and um, I've learned over the years that I don't need to put in as many as I used to for some of these dissections. And I've also learned over the years where not to put them to avoid kind of a mangled mess that, that really irks, you know, irks you and, and it creates complications in the long run. Before you reach for whether it's a stent or a tack, I mean, are there certain things you do to uh, limit or avoid dissections altogether that you've found over experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, number one, I think in general, let's talk about the tibials here, right? I think we undersize our balloons in the tibials. We know on average, I think a tibial is probably about 2.6 or so, you know, taking all comers, 2.6 millimeters. But 
people typically are grabbing for a half size lower than that because they are worried about dissection, which rightfully so. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, ibis every vessel and go really aggressive and try to create dissections and use devices to, you know, treat the dissections. But the one thing that I have learned is that the longer inflation times and the serial, so I'll take a, so for example, I'll take a, if I've got a long tibial dissection, I'll cross it and then I'll take like a 2-0 balloon and have it up for a couple minutes just to kind of let the vessel adapt. And then I'll take the, maybe I ibis it, maybe I don't, but I, I grab the balloon that I think I'm going to do definitive treatment with. And then I leave those balloons up for long time, like five, six minutes. It drives my staff crazy. But I mean, like, that's just what I've learned. And that whether it's, I just, I feel like I get better results that way. And it also, I think it helps treat some of that recoil. And then after it, I try to assess the blood flow in that vessel. I make some assumptions when I'm treating a tibial vessel that I don't have any significant lesions or problems with flow from, you know, inflow. So my iliacs are clean, my SFA, my pops clean. And so in my mind, I feel like after I've opened up whatever vessel it is, I should get a good signal in that foot or maybe even feel the pulse. And so I have my staff, they have the Doppler out. We're kind of checking to see what the pulses are as the procedure moves forward. You know, hopefully we'll get divide, like the Flomet from Medtronic and maybe use that to help guide whether or not we're done treating things. But for me, I have on a lot of times I've put a stent in or a tack in where I just, I think there might be something going on. And then I'll kind of reassess flow. Oh, okay, I've got a better signal now. And then I'll search around. Maybe I missed something. Maybe I haven't. Uh, but I don't typically stop until I've, I've got a good signal because I mean, you spend all this time doing it. You might as well, you're on third base. You might as well go home, right? And so it's like, let's, let's get the job done. But I know other people, you know, everybody's a little bit different. And I actually just got back from the national sales training meeting for Phillips. And they had me do a lot of tax stuff. And just hearing from their reps, it's they're they're having a hard time getting traction with the device for a number of reasons. Cost is one of them, but physicians are just a little unclear about where to use it. It's a pin and pull method, so it's not a triaxial thumb wheel, so it takes a little bit of finesse. And uh, there's just a lot more questions I think out there. We actually I do these things called tac chats. I started them with Philip. Well, it was within tech vascular and just before the pandemic because. You know, frankly, what's new in peripheral arterial disease? Really not much. I mean, obviously, we've got drug-coated stuff and whatnot, and maybe we'll get some new Limus devices in the future, but the tacks are something new. And again, not, not every dissection needs to be treated, but I think this has started a conversation about dissections and, and how to assess them and how to figure out, is it flow-limbing or not? Is the deployment mechanism for TAC, you kind of mentioned this, but is it complicated or is it pretty simple? I mean, can you walk us through it just for listeners? Yeah, sure. So basically you get, let's, let's use the big, the big boy. So the four to eight millimeter, you know, sizing lumens, you get six tacks on the catheter and it's a pin and pull system. And so basically you, you have the device and, and what you need to do is under floral or having talked to the rep ahead of time. You have to understand what there's a lot of markers and the catheter itself is kind of busy. The tacks themselves, the radiopaque portion of the tack is actually in the middle of the two kind of crowns. That in and of itself is a little bit of a hurdle because when we're putting stents in, our eyes look for the radiopaque marker, but in most stents or all stents, the radiopaque marker is distal and proximal. So this is a little bit different. There are little bands, radiopaque bands between each tack. And so ultimately what you have to do is loosen the TUI 
and then you kind of, I, I describe it like popping a bottle of you know champagne and trying to pull that cork out. You don't just necessarily crank the, you kind of have to massage it sometimes. And so you are pinning and pulling, but sometimes you're pushing as well uh, on, on the uh, deployment device. And so th- there's a little, there's nuances, you kind of shimmy it out. And the tacks too, they, they can pop out on you a little bit and that irks physicians. And so when I am asked to speak to reps about how to train and, and, and coach physicians through this, it's, it's not uncommon to deploy a tack and have it go in the wrong spot. And I mean, when we were involved in their clinical trials, I had, I had some that just, they just kind of, they popped out. And so uh, it, it takes about five or six, I think, deployments to kind of really get an understanding of the, of the mechanism and what you're, what you're looking at. But uh, I find that after a while, you can be quite accurate with them and place them in very specific spots and uh, feel comfortable doing so. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphonysuite. A question from the audience, Ali Behetti was asking for new users, one of the challenges that she has is that it's a bailout device. And so she never has a rep nearby. And so she usually ends up just stenting if she has a flow limiting dissection. Are there any solutions if an operator who may not have a high enough case volume to justify having the rep there just because they want to try the product? I mean, because she's, she's in Tacoma, Washington, so it's a different kind of territory. You know, a, a couple of things. I think the company is looking at maybe ways to use Immertech. They have those Oculus glasses for training. I mean, I think doing some remote proctoring would make sense. We do these, these TAC chats remotely, and those are nice kind of intimate conversations between a couple of physicians and myself or other users. And, and we go over the deployment there also. I haven't recorded any of my cases yet, but they were asking potentially if, if we'd do that. But honestly, those reps, at least the ones I've talked to at the sales meeting last week, they just want to try to help docs understand this. So most of them are pretty willing to, to be there and kind of sit through it. And, and a lot of times too, I get asked, you know, is it really a bailout and I, I don't know that it's a bailout. It's just another option for treatment. And and I think it kind of when we were talking, Christian was asking me about like, hey, do I do anything different to prevent dissections? And yeah, I mean, obviously we do atherectomy and whatnot. And I try not to get too silly with ballooning, but I think Ivis really helps us gauge what the true size of that vessel is. And for me, it allowed these devices, and I guess I didn't mean for the whole conversation to be about tax, but it allows us to get more aggressive at least in the tibial vessels with treating these long CTOs. You mentioned something interesting with Ivising below the knee, and I've had some struggles when I go sort of mid-calf or distally with Ivis, just getting the quality measurements and images I want. I mean, down to proximal calf, I'm good, but then below the knee, I struggle with using Ivis to sort of guide my therapy. I don't know if you have any pearls or wisdom on that. We have the Philips Ivis, and I'm, my understanding is that Boston's might be a little bit more easier to see. But a couple of things that I've noticed too is that when you, to your point, when you do get into the smaller areas of the vessel, 
the device can you know almost fill up the whole lumen, so it's hard to see dissections. I use it. I don't really use IVUS for dissection assessment, to be honest with you. I'll use it just to try to help size and just kind of take a look. I mean, when you IVUS these things and you just see it's just chuck full of plaque. Yeah, I mean, my balloon was probably okay, but I know in my heart of heart that this probably isn't going to stay open too long. So I've got to maybe do something different, whether it is maybe some atherectomy or, or even just stent it. Not necessarily for dissection, but just stent it because there's so much plaque there. And I think Ivis does kind of help guide you a little bit with sizing. I mean, that's obviously the best thing for it. But for me, if you said, hey, do, you, do I use it for you know measuring dissections and, and trying to look for flow patterns? I, I really don't below the knee because I, I find it hard to do. How far distally have you ever deployed attack? A couple of weeks ago, I, I put three. Well, I wanted three, but I ended up putting four in the foot. And it was just one of these situations well, the way I approach somebody who has critical limb ischemia, I mean, I do not, I don't go into people's tibials unless they have CLI or, you know, rest pain or whatever. So for me, it's kind of like, all right, let's, let's, you got one or, one or two shots at this. Let's do whatever we can. And I just could not get this vessel to stay open. It just kept recoiling. It was, a, it was the dorsalis pedis. And I thought, well, let's just see where the, let's see number one, can I get the tack down there? Because I sure as heck ain't going to put, not, I'm not going to put a coronary stent, but can I get the tax down there and was able to do it? I mean, you have to make up pretty good and you can't see really because the tack is obscuring blood flow. And so you're kind of blind a little bit, but you mark it on the screen. And that's another thing too. I think when people ask about pearls of deploying these, making sure you're marking it on the screen or you've got a ruler and you're off the bone and megged up and all that good stuff. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I, it, it's pretty rare. I've only, that's only the second time I did it. The first time I did it, I kind of made the mistake. I thought I could prop open this kind of plantar vessel that had a lot of calcium and I couldn't even get the device to it. I mean, it's a pretty forgiving device, but I just, I couldn't get it to where I wanted it to be. So hopefully this, I mean, they stayed open for the past couple of weeks. I mean, I don't know how long it's going to stay open, but you know, we'll see. Sabine had a really good question about sizing. So for me, sizing's always been a little confusing, and I think there's three different sizes. I personally keep two on the shelf, mainly to limit my own confusion and device selection. But do you have any guidance on some of these sizes overlap in numbers and trying to pick the right size for the right vessel? Yeah, so to your point, you really only need two SKUs. The original device was, I think, like 3.5 to 6.5 or something like this. And that has been eclipsed with the 4 millimeter to 8 millimeter adaptive sizing and then the little guy, the 1.5 to 3.5. So, or I'm sorry, 1.5 to 4.5. So for me, most tibials are getting the 1.5 to 4.5 and then probably maybe the TP trunk, but any popliteal, SFA, whatever is 4 to 8. We've got probably five or six patients that we deployed these in the common femoral artery for an iatrogenic perclose dissection, which I thought was kind of a curious way to do it. And the nice thing about it too is because of that adaptive sizing, you're able to land that first crown, the more distal one, like in the SFA, and then you can take that second one across into the common femoral and not necessarily jail the profunda. So this was an acute event, but we knew going into it that the, what the size of the vessel was, it was clean. There was a dissection there, so we were able to do it. But again, I think if you have the two sizes on your shelf and anything kind of below the, the distal pop or TP trunk, you use the small ones and anything above, you use the big ones, you, you should be okay. When you have multi-level disease for CLI and you're, let's say you've got dissections above the knee, below the knee, do you open two devices? Do you try and 
finagle one or? Yeah, I mean, I think I try not to open more than two devices in any case because, again, the cost is an issue. I had one doctor tell me that he felt like he needed to deploy all of them, all the tacks that were in the catheter. I don't subscribe to that notion, but I, I do recognize that you have to be smart. I mean, if you're going to put 12 tacks in, you might as well put a stent in, right? And I think they are considering having six, I think, is a good number. Four is a little bit limiting. So on average for me, in the tibials, I'm probably opening two of the small ones. And then anything above that, you know, SFA pop, I'm only opening one. Because if I feel like I need more than six, then I'm going to put a stent in. Or I'm going to use a stent someplace and maybe put the tacks in a no stent zone or something like that. You know, when we deploy stents in the in the leg, we're often taught don't leave little gaps or gap areas between some of the stents. What about with tacks? Do you tend to overlap them? Do you ever leave gaps? Is there any amount of overlap that's the right amount? I think the company will tell you that you shouldn't overlap them because, again, very little radial strength. So you have to be careful and you want to deploy Captain Obvious here, but you want to deploy distal to proximal because you don't necessarily want to be running this, running the catheter through fresh tacks. I mean, we do it all the time if you have to. But for me, if I've got, let's say, an eight centimeter dissection, I'm tacking inflow, outflow to top the top of it. And then I'm probably putting a couple in between. Over the years, I have, I'm putting less in between. That's where I do use Ivis to kind of take a look and see, all right, well, what are those tacks doing? Is there something I might be missing? It's not meant to, because, you know, I don't kiss them really. And so I try to separate them. You can kiss them if you need to, because when you start using them, you're going to miss. And physicians don't like missing. We don't like geographical miss, but you're going to have it. You just have to understand that. And I was telling the sales force too, I'm like, you guys need to tell docs that, hey, these aren't as accurate as you might think early on. So you're going to get some misses. So if you have a miss, yeah, you can kiss them or overlap. But I usually try to leave three, four millimeters of gap between. Because again, if you're going to pile them on top of each other, you might as well just put a stent in because it's a heck of a lot quicker. Christian, you want to talk about like surveilling tax versus stents? Yeah, I thought that was uh, an interesting topic. Some of my, as I've deployed a few of these, some of my ultrasound texts are now asking me, did you deploy a tack or a stent or, you know, what do I need to look for? Or is there any differences you've seen or heard of on surveillance duplex imaging with these? No, I mean, it was interesting too that you hear across the country that docs were reporting lack of use because there was acute or subacute closures. And, you know, a lot of restenosis or occlusion where I've seen them restenose and it's in the tibials. It's kind of between the two tacks. I think the closures are probably related to just, in my opinion, failing to see or treat some, you know, another dissection or some plaque disease that the, the thing was going to fail either way. I think if you size a vessel appropriately, prep the vessel and treat it appropriately ahead of time. And if you do have a dissection, putting them in kind of specific spots along the way without having to, again, stack a bunch of them, it leads to pretty good results. And when we scan the folks at the one month, six month year, whatever, no difference. I have not in my knock on wood seen any issues with it, or at least any reports from our ultrasound staff. To kind of jump even further past surveillance is um, billing. You know, it's something that I've been thinking about during the conversation. When you do your dictation or your report, and you dictate that it's a tack was used, 
Do you ever find that you have to elaborate a little further in order to make sure that on the receiving end, the payers know that it was a stent versus a tack or they're you know avoiding any confusion? I have not run into that issue because I, I always try to convey to people that this is not a stent, but it, you know it's a scaffold, but it gets billed as a stent. I've talked to our coding folks and they have not run into any issues. Interestingly enough, we ran, we're running into some issues with lithotripsy but in the peripheral, but we're not running into any issues with, with TAC yet. John, if you use a lot of DCB and drug coder technology, I mean, do you think that there's a difference POBA versus DCB, uh, whether you have to put in metal or, or use tacks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, best practice is drug. So our lab, we were the first lab to deploy the Zilver PTX back in the day. And so we were pretty hot and heavy with Zilver for a while. And, and we still use them, but I've gotten smarter about not full metal jacketing these folks. You know, at least in our practice, at least in, again in the FemPOP region, all of our patients get a DCB as a definitive treatment. We're not seeing these folks come back like we used to. And uh, those that have some residual plaque or a dissection, you know, we'll put a, a drug-coated stent in if need be. Or I like using the tax in that situation because it can kind of limit some of the metal. And uh, again, thus far, we've had pretty good success with it. I understand the cost of DCB and, and whatnot, but I do think it should be standard of care in my opinion. What about medical adjunctive therapy with tax? Is that different for you than stenting? Meaning like atherectomy or? So medical therapy. So, uh, you know, dual antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation. Do you handle that differently with tax? No. So, I mean, for us, it's DAPT for, you know, probably three months and, and then reconsidering monotherapy thereafter. Uh, so we treat it as an implant and a stent. We're trying to use more Xeralto and low-dose aspirin, or I know it's off-label, but Xeralto and Plavix or Clopidogrel at the 2.5 twice daily of Xeralto. The hurdle there is cost for these folks. But those that can afford it, we're really pivoting to that too, based on Compass and Voyager and whatnot. You mentioned you went, you know, a couple cases below ankle. Have you, off-label, have you ever put in any in any other sort of weird, unusual places? upper extremity or some other weird location? I have thought about it a couple of times in the arm and have punted. We have used it in folks that have come in with acute limb ischemia that we have lysed and done thrombectomy to, and we still can't get rid of some of the clot and nothing is working. I will, I will use it to kind of tack up the thrombus. We've had a couple of cases that it was successful, and it's, that's usually distal tibials let me think where else. Again, I mentioned the the common femoral inappropriate size for those dissections. I have not put any in iliacs or any other places like that. A couple in the profunda, uh, I think we've done. But again, we try to use it on label as best we can. But the nice thing about it is that the more you, at least in my opinion, the more you use it, the more comfortable you are deploying it. And then you can think about maybe, yeah, this is an interesting dilemma here. I'm not getting good blood flow. What should I do? And does it play a role there? Maybe. And I, the other thing too, I, th I like about it is that I always tell people it allows you to be a, a little bit of an artist. You know, a stent is pretty brain numbingly easy. I mean, my kids could deploy them. And so the tacks are a little bit trickier. And so you're trying to, you got to get good at it. And once you get good at it, then you can kind of get nuance it and figure out, all right, maybe I'll put it this way, or maybe I'll put it here or something. 
Yes, we we did end up talking a lot about tax in the context of dissections, which is great. I mean, it's one of those things where when we talked about doing this episode, when I kind of pulled some of my IR colleagues, I think it was the same concerns that you mentioned before, John, from the the sales meeting is there's a concern about the price and a concern about the deployment mechanism and it not being as straightforward as, as a stent, like you just said. Uh, are there any resources out, out there? I mean, training courses. I, I know Philips is really good about putting together training courses, but anything that you can think of to help people get more comfortable with this technology? Again, what I would do is if you are thinking about using them or want to learn more, reach out to your Philips rep. I mean, you can give folks my contact information. I help folks out all the time. Like we These tech chats that we do, basically what they'll do is they take out a couple of docs from their region to a restaurant and then I zoom in or somebody zooms in and, and I show cases and we go over the deployment. We talk about it. You have two types of physicians, in my opinion, those that are kind of very comfortable doing what they've done. They've treated X disease pathology the same way and they just don't want to try anything new. And, you know, those are one subset. And then there are other physicians that are interested in trying to do something or learn a different technique. And those are the people that kind of gravitate towards using these devices. I think it was launched in COVID. So I think it never really got a good launch, frankly. And so I think they're considering relaunching and are doing some more marketing towards it. And I think that'll help. But at the end of the day, they do have resources. Reach out to your rep and they'll get you in touch with somebody and you can give out my contact information. I'm happy to field questions or whatnot. Thank you so much for that. One last question. Have we seen the cost change at all since it's been launched? I don't think so. And it is, I mean, I think you can get a drug looting stent for about 800 bucks or something. And, and these are maybe, these might be three times that. So you, you have to be careful. I haven't gotten my hand slapped yet because it's recognized as a novel device. But in my opinion, you have to be smart where you think about putting it. Because if you talk to Phillips, they'll tell you, you got to treat every dissection. You know, every dissection is flow limiting, but they're not. And you don't need to treat everyone, but you need to think about them. Because I, I kept hearing over and over, well, our docs just leave it and they'll reassess it later. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't know, when's later, right? Like you either get it done now or don't do it, frankly. So just be aware that they're expensive. If you're going to do them for the first time, try a couple of simple dissections, get a feel for it. Don't be putting, you know, 15, 20 of these things in because that's not going to be, that can help anybody, but use them judiciously and you'll be all right. Yeah. To Ali's point earlier, maybe like if it's going to be a complex case where you, you expect a dissection almost, is this how the rep there for that case, whether you place it or not, right? I mean, it seems like that would be kind of a, a next best step. I got the sense that a lot of reps are coming to cases and twiddling their thumbs because they're not getting deployed. They'd be jazzed just to get invited, I think. Just to be invited, yeah, to the party. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to finish it. Unless, Christian, you got any more questions? No, no, this was great. Great little pearls and technical little things. I uh, appreciate it. And John's selling himself short, Aaron. I mean, John is the, like one of the most respected interventionalists in Columbus. So it's just, it's awesome to have him on the show. You know, I'm on the kind of the east side of town and he sort of runs the the, the entire, everything around me, he sort of runs it. So <laughs> it's 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 a privilege. No, I, it was a pleasure. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you guys. I've heard great things about your podcast. And I, I think it's just cool, again, to just kind of spitball about complications and, and things and, and, and how to learn and how to get better. But uh, Christian, we'll have, to, we'll have to get together sometime and chat. <laughs> I know, I know. We, we definitely, definitely. Maybe we'll all do it over the next Buckeye home game here. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be great, actually. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 